or rejoice with when we the Mexico team. Good job, Huey and Gary, and all the uh, team members who went down to uh, minister the gospel. The people there, just uh, so many uh, thoughts. Just listening to, watching the slide presentation, and hearing the sharing of these two men. Oh, what a joy to be part of what God is doing uh, all over the world, and especially here in our backyard. Talking to a <clears throat> father, uh, maybe a year, maybe a couple of years ago, and he was telling me how um, the way to deprive our kids is not by not taking them to Disneyland or Little League or music or ballet classes. We deprive our children if we don't expose them to ministry, serving Christ. If our kids don't see parents loving Christ, worshiping Him, sacrificing for Christ, if our children do not participate in evangelism and missions and ministry, we're truly depriving our children. And that's so, that's so true. It's so right. Um, in, our, in our culture, it's all about um, just catering to our kids and giving them all the desires of their hearts and they grow up embittered and angered and discontent. way to cause them to have humble and contented hearts is to uh, teach them the gospel, model the gospel to them, and involve them in serving the Lord. And it's a great example to all the families that went down there, um, the E's, Bulises, and Gary, and uh, Cindy as well for staying back and watching too. And then you go with Nathan. And the E's too, they're a um, week of BBS, and then they went right to Mexico the following Monday. And so... John Lee proved how difficult it is to work with children and caring for three at home. Uh, really just a great example from the ease to be uh, steadfast, abounding in the Lord's work, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Some of you guys know about my current situation with children. I'm caring for uh, three kids at home. My wife's on complete bed rest. She's finishing our 36 weeks, so we're Dr. James Shin has put her on modified bed rest. Out <laughs> of a desperate need for help at home. So 36 weeks, good enough. Uh, the kick's done. It's all, it's all safe from, from what I hear. So um, some modified bed rest. Much easier for me so helping out at home. This morning was the sense of like sanity at home because she was helping me with the children. But um, her, her contractions are getting stronger, so uh, I've got my phone here with me. And if it starts vibrating... I'm going to have to take it. <laughs> I might have to leave or cut the sermon short or I'll just give my notes to Bob or Marcus and you guys take over and I'll go. But Ray and Jane got married last yesterday and they cut it really close. Um, and DP and Susie, you guys cut it real close. You went to Jamaica after your honeymoon and you guys got back and Hurricane Dean, right? So glad you guys are back safely. Well, because of uh, the tumult at home, um, my mind's been all over the place. I apologize for having a schizophrenic pulpit on Sundays. Apostle Paul, Second Timothy, Romans 12, and now, you know, kill sin or sin will kill you. But that's the nature of uh, ministry in the real world. You know, it'd be great if uh, I didn't have a life apart from ministry. But, well, that is the nature of uh, real life ministry. Like what Gary was saying, you want to do Lord's work? But there's pressures, there's demands made upon us by family, friends, work. And uh, in the midst of that, 
we got to do ministry. So, so today, uh, we're going to study uh, mortification of sin. Mortification of sin. John Owen's quote, Be all about killing sin or sin will be killing you. I confess freely, confess frequently that I have no original ideas, no original thoughts. I don't say anything that really comes from my own heart, my own thoughts. They're all borrowed ideas. This sermon I owe a great debt to John Owen, John MacArthur, Thomas Watson, and Wayne Mack. Especially Wayne Mack's book, Fight the Death. Very helpful to me in our study on the issue of sin, the topic of sin. He began his book with this statement. I know this is true from personal experience. One of the primary reasons I was motivated to look more carefully at what the Bible teaches about sin is my realization that even as a pastor who spends hours in God's Word almost every day, I had an attitude towards sin that was slipping and it scared me. One of the reasons we play with sin is that we are ignorant about how dangerous it is. To make matters worse, we are ignorant about how ignorant we are about sin. We know sin is bad, but the way that we live makes it clear that we do not know how terrible it really is. I read that statement and it struck me to the core because I could, I understood exactly what he was saying. I could, it resonated with me. I identified with his statement that he had an added towards sin that was slipping and it scared him. And that is my experience consistently. I'm a pastor. I spend hours in the Word, day, almost daily. And yet, my cavalier, complacent, easy attitude towards sin was, was alive and well and was scaring me. I often forget, so how much more, all of us, I forget that sin is indeed terrible. That sin is wicked. Sin is evil. Sin is contrary to God. I forget John Owen's words, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is no neutrality with sin. There is no peace. There is no compromise with sin. I forget that we are in a spiritual war against sin. That I am called, that you are called, we all forget that we are called to war against sin. This means that as believers, one of the first things we must learn is the art of battle which includes understanding the strategy of our enemy, the nature of sin, the complexity of the human heart, and the goodness and provision of God. So with that backdrop, we want to spend our time looking at sin. We want to look at sin. Luther said, take one look at sin and ten looks at the cross. One look at sin and ten looks at Christ. And that... I wholly believe that, endorse that, apply that. But I also say, because you only get one look at sin, make it a good look. You should only look at sin one time. So because there's only one time, make sure your singular perception, your singular sight of sin is, is clear, it's thorough, it's comprehensive, that it is right, that you will look sin dead in its eyes, and understand it clearly. Understand that this is one of our chief needs as believers. As believers in the church, this is one of our chief needs to rightly understand sin, to rightly see sin as it is. 
writing a century ago, J.C. Ryle offered a sharp but simple explanation for the deficiencies he observed in the church. Dim or indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false doctrines of the present day. I believe that one of the chief needs of the church in our century has been and is a clearer, fuller teaching and understanding about sin. J.I. Packer said to say that our first need in life is to learn about sin may sound strange, but in the sense intended, it is profoundly true. Our first need in life is to learn about sin. If you have not learned about sin, you cannot understand yourself. You don't have a right self-conception. Your, your identity, your perception of yourself is tainted or, or distorted if you don't understand, understand sin. You don't, you cannot understand your fellow man. You cannot understand the world you live in or the Christian faith. And you will not, apart from a right understanding of sin, make heads or tails of the Bible. For the Bible is an exposition of God's answer to the problem of human sin. And unless you have that problem clearly before you, you will keep missing the point of what the Bible says. It is clear, therefore, that we need to fix in our minds what our ancestors would have called, quote, clear view of sin, end quote. John Owen wrote again, Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness while he walks not over the bellies of his lusts. You want to grow in holiness? You've got to walk in the bellies of your lusts and understand the, the desires, the sinful cravings that are, that are waging war against your soul and your own heart. So, today, this morning, we want to commit together to take a one long look at the vileness and the utter wickedness of our sins. To do away with our excuses, our rationales, our justifications. As the book of Judges says twice, every man was right in his own eyes. That is how sin deceives us. We justify, we rationalize, we excuse every sinful intent, sinful motivation, sinful thought, and sinful act. And therefore, we see ourselves in the mirror of the world and see ourselves as righteous before God and man. We want to do away with that this morning and see our sins as God sees it and see our sins as the Bible tells us so that we might discern it rightly. So we'll begin by looking at the Bible, our source to see sin rightly, the, the, the right mirror that reveals who we truly are apart from Christ. The Bible tells us many things, first and foremost, tells us the sinfulness of sin, sinfulness of sin, that it is utterly evil, utterly evil. Many years ago, in 1662, August 17th, it was a tragic day. All gospel-believing, gospel-preaching pastors were kicked out of the Church of England. These were men who were devoted to the purity of the gospel, but the Church of England wanted nothing, nothing to do with the gospel, so they were expelled. 2,500 
pastors were exiled, forbidden to preach the gospel. 23,000, or 3,000, excuse me, nonconformists were killed, and 60,000 families were disrupted. There's a book out there called Farewell Sermons, a compilation of 24 sermons preached on that day. I have that book going through it slowly. These are a collection of sermons from pastors who would never see their church again, who would never preach the gospel to their, to their people again. Some of them died in exile. Some of them were able to come back later on. While this was taking place, it is interesting to hear their sermons, to, to hear what was on their hearts. None of the sermons that I have read so far were self-serving. None of them were condemned None of them condemned the government for what it did. None of them were vengeful, retaliatory. There were no threats. All of them were so gracious, submitting themselves and calling all believers to submit themselves to the will of God, to the providence of God. One of the sermons was by a man named Colomy. He made the statement that it struck me. He said, quote, you have experienced a calamity. This is a calamitous thing. A calamitous event that God's man is forbidden to preach the gospel and that God, the pastor is removed from the church and separated from his own parishioners. But he said, there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity. There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest misery. You look at your life in general, speak of calamities, distresses, and miseries, and yet you're tolerant about your sins, and you are mistaken because there is much greater evil in the least of our sins than the greatest calamities in the world, whether it be an earthquake in Peru, bridge falling in Minneapolis, whether it be mass murders in, in Iraq, suicide bombings killing men, women, and children, there's greater evil in a single sin that is committed by you and I. We look at our lives and we, we mourn and we, our hearts grow heavy because certain things we want we don't get. Or we experience certain pain or certain loss and our hearts are heavy. And maybe we even shed tears because of those, thing, those things. But the Bible tells us our tears are wasted. Our heavy hearts, our energy, our, our emotions are wasted on such things because our sins murdered God's Son. The pure and perfect Son of God, tender-hearted, infinitely merciful God who came on earth to save His people from His sins, from their sins, was crucified because of our transgressions. The Bible tells us, if we are offended by anything, it should be our sins. If we are hurt by anything, if we mourn over anything, if we are disgusted about anything, it's the vileness, the wickedness, the utter sinfulness of our sins. Second thing the Bible tells us is that sin is deceptive. That it wears masks. It is an ugly beast, but when it comes knocking on the door of our hearts, it, it is dressed up like a Girl Scout. Sin wants us to think that it only wants to sell us some cookies when it, in fact it really wants to destroy us. We are deceived by sin 
And willingly, we deceive ourselves about sin. And we categorize sin as big sins and little sins, as if there are things called little sins. As if little sins do not offend God, dishonor Him, affront to His holiness. Cornelius Plantinga said, when, we come, when it comes to our own sin, we deny what we know to be true. We assert what we know to be false. We pitify ugly realities and sell ourselves to petrified versions. We become our own dupes. Sin deceives us and we deceive ourselves. Sin is smooth, it is subtle, draws our minds away from God, entices the affections, twists our desires, paralyzes the, our will, and causing us to draw away, move away from Christ. The most frightening thing about sin, more than its wickedness, more than its wickedness, more than its deceptive nature, is the truth that sin is inside of us. Sin is within us. We're contaminated by sin. It's something to meet someone with AIDS, something to know that we ourselves have AIDS, we have contracted AIDS. It's inside of us. And it's permeated every aspect of our being. There is no area in our lives, in our souls, in our hearts that is not affected, tainted, contaminated by the evil of sin. It is a heart-melting truth, a frightening truth, that sin is not out there to be fought, but sin is inside of us. Our enemy is not only upon us, but it is also in us. It is a key part of understanding the battle against sin. That it is not an external battle, but it is an internal battle. Most Christians seem quite unaware of this truth. Or, at the very least, apathetic about the sin that remains in them. They are concerned about external moral excellence. Motivated by sinful things, fear of man, pleasing man, personal morals, love of self. But internal sin rages out of control and they seem utterly apathetic. Because sin is inside of us, it affects everyone and every kinds of people. Considering personalities, there is a persistent danger among Christians where we confuse personalities with sanctification, creating an inaccurate hierarchy within Christendom, where we view quiet people as those who are unaffected by sin, quiet personalities, those who are more reserved, those who are, those who are, have more in the back, more in the back, more in the more reserved, quieter, they're not as boisterous, their sins are not as clearly seen in their life, in their decisions, in their words. And Christians confuse, wow, he's quiet, so he must be godly. She has such a quiet, nice temperament. She must be growing in holiness. The Bible makes no such distinction. Sin has contaminated all people. 
it is a mistake for us to equate quietness with godliness and someone who is loud as being carnal. Some people are just naturally quiet and gentle, while others are more enthusiastic and passionate. Yet this vile, evil sin is found in both kinds of people. In this life, there is no escaping the challenges of temptation. There is no escaping it. Let's look at some words that the Bible uses to describe sin. More than 17 separate words are used, employed by authors of Scripture to describe sin. 17. Go through a few of them. One of them is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is any failure to conform to God's law. We're talking here about attitude and action. Therefore, we sin when we do do or say or think anything that God commands us not to. Likewise, we sin when when we do not do, we do not say, do not think what God commands us to do. Any and the slightest, even the slightest departure from absolute obedience to God's law is sin. It is lawlessness. Another word often used is transgression. Transgression literally means to revolt, to rebel against the rightful authority. Oftentimes we see sin in the horizontal realm, first and foremost against other people. We fail to recognize that first and foremost our sins are against God, and especially the great heart searcher because he knows the thoughts, the intentions of our hearts. When outwardly we're conforming to God's law, but in our hearts we're raging against God's authority. We hate God's laws and we are, we, we, we shout at it, yell at it, we want to rebel against it. We are sinning against Him. All sin is against God. All sin first is vertical. David understood this in his adultery of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, her husband. Psalm 51, 4, against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. It is rebellion. Transgression. When we sin, no matter what, how we deceive ourselves, no matter how we justify, justify our attitudes or our actions, we are shaking our fists at God. We are treating a good and gracious God as if He were our worst enemy. We are warring against Him. We are acting like a traitor. And we commit sin even in our hearts. We are committing open treason, aiding and abetting the enemy. Another word is perversion. Sin is perversion. A pervert is not someone who just merely sits up in his room looking at dirty pictures. To pervert something literally means to twist it, distort it. And that is exactly what we do when we sin. We twist and distort something that is good into something that is not. When we sin, we are being perverted. Take sexual sin, for example. God has a great plan for sex. God created sex, sexual intimacy, to be enjoyed by men and women. It is a blessing of God for the marriage bed. 
And yet, man, in our perversion, we twist it, we distort it. And we make it into something wicked, sinful, and evil. Sin is adultery. God takes sin personally. It's not just an isolated act. Like when we break the traffic laws of our government, the government doesn't take it personally. They don't get offended by us running a red light or changing lanes without signaling. When we sin, God takes it personally. He considers it unfaithfulness. Sinning against God is committing spiritual adultery. If you are moved by our study at all, read Ezekiel 16 this week. And you will want to take a shower afterwards. You will want to go for a long walk or go into your closet and weep at Ezekiel's portrayal of Israel's sin and how it was spiritual adultery to God. How people in the world commit adultery, but they commit adultery uh, behind closed doors. They're ashamed. They, they do it in secret. But we commit spiritual adultery brazenly before His sight, before His face. We commit spiritual adultery. We like to trivialize sin. We need to understand that when we sin against God, we are being like a prostitute. Ezekiel 16 says, a prostitute in the world receives money for sex. But spiritual adultery is, the prostitute is paying someone money to be unfaithful to her husband. That is how blasphemous, evil sin is in the sight of God. That is why God takes it so personally. That is why it so offends our Lord. Sin is disgusting to God. Sin is also getting lost. Words like getting lost, astray, wandering, these words are used to describe sin. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, Wandering off God's way. Crossing over boundaries. He has set for our own good, our own protection. Trespassing in forbidden, dangerous territory. God hates sin. God takes it personally. God is offended by sin. What are the effects of sin? Consequences? What does sin do to us? the spiritual realm in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds, it makes us dirty. makes us unclean. We don't see that. We don't see it physically. But the Bible reveals to us, Matthew 23, we're like rotting bones. There is a spiritual stench that is disgusting. It is gross. It is dirty. It is revolting. Rotting of bones, rotting of flesh. It makes us disgusting to God. Ralph Benning said, sin is a poison. Sin is called vomit. Sin is defiling, degrading. It stamps the devil's image on the human soul. And it only, just, it only grows. 
sin just makes it easier for us to sin some more. It's like a snowball rolling downhill. Gathers more speed and strength. Grows in size. Only grows in size with time. Such is the way with our sins. I love what Wayne Max said. Every small sin wants to be, big, wants to be a big sin when it grows up. Every sin, small sin has an aspiration. When it grows up, it wants to be a big sin. Sin perpetually stalks us. Give sin an inch, Owen said, it will take a mile. If sin can gain a footing in our lives, it will send forth roots and grow like weeds. It will use us, abuse us, and inflict as much disaster as possible. Listen to what Pastor Owen said. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. It proceeds toward its height by degrees, making good the ground it hath got by hardness. Nothing can prevent this but mortification. The Bible highlights to us the seriousness of our sins by its punishment. By its punishment. Through our legal system, in fact, legal system throughout the world, one of the core principles is that punishment must equal the crime. Punishment must equal the crime. We uh, live by this every day. Someone, uh, again, runs a red light, send them to prison for two, two years, we would say, that's not fair. Right? Someone um, changes lanes, and you send them away for 10 years, that's not fair. The penalty is too great. The crime doesn't warrant such a penalty. And then you hear about, and I, I, I kind of got this, I took this personally, I don't know if you guys read about this, this lady murdered her preacher husband, shot him while I was sleeping with a shotgun, and she got seven months in prison, and she's out, of, you know, she's free. And uh, because he was verbally abusive. I was like, man, that's not fair, right? Seven months for murder. Punishment must equal the crime. Because the converse of that reveals the seriousness of the crime. If you were to go to visit a prison and someone said, I'm in here for life, you would just respond by saying, you must have done something terrible. Right? Or a person says, I've got ten life sentences. I have no hope of ever coming out of prison. You would just conclude this person committed crimes, unspeakable acts of, 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 of cruelty and, and breaking of the law. God's punishment for sin reveals to us how serious sin is in God's eyes. This is why the prophets of God who called His people to see their sin for what it was, to grieve over it, to confess it, to forsake it, did not just tell the people to repent, but told them about God's judgment. It was not them threatening them, repent or God's going to judge you. Repent or God's going to be, be angry with you or condemn you. They explained God's judgment, God's punishment, to, to open their eyes to see what they were doing, how great their sins were before a holy God. To help us to get a picture of how awful sin is. 
So, God's punishment for sin is a place. And it's called hell. It's called hell. That shows us the exceedingly wickedness and sinfulness of our sins. Psalm 11.6 Let the rain coals on the wicked. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation 20.15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown, cast away into the lake of fire. Hell is a horrifying place. Pastor MacArthur wrote, There is no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produces a terror to match that of the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Let the most gifted writer exhaust his skill in describing this roaring cavern of unending flame and he would not even brush in fancy the nearest edge of hell. In Jesus' parables, he described it. Jesus described it as a place of darkness. A place where there will be many weeping and gnashing of teeth. People screaming and writhing in anger and agony. In Matthew 13, 41, our Lord described it as a place of eternal fire, a place of eternal pain. The word eternal is what makes the biblical picture of hell so terrifying. That's why so many Christians and many false teachers do away with eternal punishment. Jehovah's Witnesses can't handle this. So they do away with eternal punishment. And they say a loving God could never do this to people. He just annihilates them when they don't exist anymore. They don't feel any pain anymore after death. But they're undermining the holiness of God, the eternality of God, the infiniteness of God. They're reinterpreting God and making a mockery of Him because our sins are first and foremost against God who is eternal and eternally holy. So our sins separate us from God eternally. So sin, so hell is eternal. There is no hope in hell or hope from hell. Hell is what we deserve apart from faith in Christ. And the punishment of hell rightly instructs our hearts on the severe grossness of our sins. We see sin as God sees it. So, that one luck, very disturbing, 
very uncomfortable, but it's true. That young man who killed all these students at Virginia Tech, Cho Sung Hee, his picture was splattered all over our websites for days and weeks. I stopped logging on to the websites for several days. I was tired of seeing his picture. Why was I so tired of seeing his picture? Because looking at those murderous eyes, I see myself. Because I know that the same sin that twisted his heart, blinded him, deceived him, embittered him, caused him to go astray, rebel against God and murder others, is alive and well in my flesh as well. Only thing separating me from that, that man is the grace of God. One look. Hopefully we, we're making good use of it. What ought to be, what must be our attitude towards sin as Christians? Knowing that sin blinds, sin deceives, knowing that sin is in us, waging guerrilla warfare against the eternal dominion that Christ established in our hearts. Sin wages a persistent war against Christ's authority in our, in our lives. What must be our attitude? First attitude must be one of confession. One of confession. Thomas Watson in his book, Doctrine of Repentance, said this, Confession is self-accusing. When we come before God, we must accuse ourselves. The truth is that by this self-accusing, we prevent Satan's accusing. In our confessions, we tax ourselves with the following. We accuse ourselves of pride, infidelity, sinful passion, so that when Satan lays these things to our charge, God will say, I already heard it. Already heard it. You come too late. The humble sinner accuses himself and he goes further. He passes sentence upon himself. He says, Lord, I am guilty, guilty, guilty. He confesses that he is deserving to be bound over to the wrath of God. He is deserving of eternal hell because of his sins. Watson continues by giving six qualifications for true confession. Go through them rather quickly. First of all, true confession must be voluntary. Must be voluntary. The compulsion is by the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. It's not because you are caught. Not because someone's making you. Not because of, of external compulsion, external pressure. It must be voluntary. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Then you forgave the guilt of my sin. Secondly, true confession must be sincere. Our hearts must go along with our confessions. Our hearts must mourn over the sin and hate it as we confess it. We must not be planning to commit that sin again all the while confessing it. We must not go to the outward motions of confession knowing that we're harboring that sin in our hearts, waiting to, for another opportunity to engage in it. 
Augustine said before his conversion, that he would confess his sins, but when the thought of removing that sin from his life, he would confess, not yet, Lord. Before his salvation, he would say, I hate this sin, God, but don't remove it from me yet. Showing he was not a Christian at that time. A good Christian is more honest. He confesses his sins and he hates his sins. In true confession, number three, a man particularizes sin. A man particularizes sin. A wicked man acknowledges that he's a sinner in general. He confesses sin by wholesale. It's so easy to do this. I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. Honey, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. Well, what do you mean? You know, I just, you know, sin against you. Forgive me for it all. Right? Oh, friend, forgive me for 2007. Right? <laughs> it's easy to do that. Easy to just generally confess sin. True confession particularizes it. Using biblical terminology, confession is the pouring out of the soul with surgical precision concerning sins committed. That was lust. That was covetousness. That was envy. That was hatred. I was prideful. I was jealous. That's discontentment. That's rebellion against God. That is a lie. That is theft. That is selfishness. Using biblical terms, being specific over each sin committed. Fourthly, true confession confesses sin in the fountain, confesses sin from its source. The true confessor acknowledges the pollution of his nature. Oh, I don't know what got into me. You know, it's those three kids this week. Right? It's, it's the kids' fault. Oh, it's, I'm tired. Right? It's, oh, work's been really, you know, stressful now. Or it was the traffic, or it's the weather, or it's, you know, all these other people or things. True confessor says, no, it's not the weather, it's not the kids, it's not you, not my parents, it's not the culture, it's not the society, it's me, it's my heart. I will refuse to blame shift. I refuse to blame it on circumstance. Psalm 51.5 I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I sinned because I am a sinner. Fifthly, true confession must so charge ourselves that we clear God of all responsibility. We clear God of all responsibility. When we uh, rage against a certain sin in our flesh. It's a temptation to say to ourselves, God, you made me like this. I hate this sin. My prayer is that this sin is removed from me. This weakness. God, you, you created me. God, it's your fault. You made me this way. How can you blame me for being what you created me to be? True confessor says, no, we vindicate God of all blame. That's what Daniel did in Daniel's great prayer in Daniel 9. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. We have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Righteousness belongs to you, O God. But to us belong open shame. He vindicated God. 
and condemned himself and his people. And number six, true confession is confession of sins with a resolution not to act them over again. Not to act them over again. Some kill their sins in their confessions and afterwards go back and let them grow as fast as ever. They see confession as therapeutic, but they did not turn. Therefore, they did not turn and forsake sin. True confession confesses sin and forsakes it. Origin called confession the vomit of the soul, whereby the conscience is eased of that burden which did lie upon it. Now, when we have vomited up sin by confession, we must not return to the vomit. We must turn away and forsake it. As Edward said, no matter how unsuccessful we are at turning away, no matter how weak we are, how repeatedly we fail, by God's grace, our resolution must be, Lord, I confess and I repent. And our failings humble us to depend on Christ. The God is so sovereign, our sins cannot hinder His will in our lives. God, that's the sovereignty of God. God uses our sins to draw us to Himself. If God wasn't sovereign, our sins would draw us away from God. But as believers, God's got all bases covered. So our sins, God uses to attract us to Himself. Where we see our failings again and again and again and again. We see us resolving to forsake sin by going back to our vomit again and again and again. And through that, we see the vileness of sin, vileness of our flesh, and we see the beauty and holiness of Christ. And we are drawn to Him. So we need to do our part of confessing, resolving, failing, depending on Christ. Our second response must be mortification of sin. We must, um, we must fight. We must have a heart of a warrior. Christians, doesn't matter a man, woman, child, all Christians, if you want to grow in sanctification, you have to have this warrior mentality, a soldier, a fighter mentality. I'm not talking about physical strength. I'm talking about, the Bible's talking about internal, inner man, spiritual strength, spiritual conviction, spiritual warrior mentality. Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. That's guts. Someone who can do that. Someone who is so longing for holiness that he tears away his right eye and throws it away without a second thought, knowing that it is better that you lose one eye than your whole body be thrown into hell. Romans 8.13 Knowing that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. So Owen summarized this by saying, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Christians must not try to coexist with sin. 
Because sin does not want to coexist with us. Sin wants to kill us, shipwreck our faith. Therefore, Christians must always be at the task of mortifying sin. This is the main business of the Christian. A habitual, successful weakening of sin that involves constant warfare and contention against the flesh. The choicest believers makes it, makes it this, their business all the days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Now, we can never kill sin until the day of Christ or until our death. What we're attempting to do is to limit the influence of our flesh, the old man, to decrease it, make it smaller, and to increase the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God in our lives. It's a degreed issue. We can never kill successfully completely sin. We can never achieve perfection on this side of eternity. Eternity. But the aim is mortification. The aim is to decrease the influence of our flesh, the old man, of the passions of our souls, to limit it, decrease it day by day, conversely increasing the influence of the Holy Spirit to the Word of God in our lives. Final response is we mortify sin, we place it with the gospel of Christ. Vivification by the gospel. Making alive by the gospel of Christ. See, Paul, whatever he talks about, he always goes back to the gospel. I gotta, I need to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. We all need to imitate Paul, imitate Christ. Whatever we're talking about, we must follow Paul and follow Christ back to the gospel. We must be gospel-centered, cross-centered, The gospel is not only the most important message for non-Christians, it is the most important message for Christians. So, one look at sin, but ten looks at the cross, the gospel of Christ, and that is how we mortify sin. That is how we see sin for what it is, and we experience mortification, and we experience new birth through Christ's gospel. It is by that ten repeated looks at what Christ has done and its fruits in our lives that we can cast aside legalism, cast aside trying to earn righteousness before a holy God. We can unload the weight of condemnation, the, the, the false humility, false shame and false guilt of legalism where we say Christ, the cross is not enough. I must pay for my sins. We can do away with that. We can enjoy freedom of the gospel. We can receive the joy of Christ by reminding ourselves again and again the simple truth that we have received free, this sovereign grace, this salvation freely by grace alone through faith alone. And it is the gospel. It is our way out of our sins. Our goal is not just to stop sinning. Or overcome sin. Our goal is to be Christ-centered, to be gospel-centered, to have the gospel work in the inner man, feeding and nourishing our faith so that we might walk in the newness of our faith, walking in the Spirit. May that be our fight this week. May that be the battle that we, we, we engage 
And may we find much freedom, much joy, the gospel of Christ. We don't do this often, but I want to give you an opportunity to confess that one or two sins that you know about. That one or two sins that, that is right now waging war and it's winning. You've lost hope and you've given yourself over to the sinful influence. You've forgotten how disgusting it is that is rebellion against God, that is exceedingly evil and wicked. You've forgotten that you are to war against it, not coexist with it. May you particularize this sin, confess it to God. By God's grace, resolve right now. By God's help, no matter how unsuccessful I will be right now, I confess. With a clear conscience, I ask you, God, for help to never sin again. May you commit it with the gospel of Christ, the free gift of God that is in Christ Jesus. Let's confess it to the Lord. Oh, Lord, if we could hear each confession of every person in this room, all of us would be so filled with shame. We'd all be so humiliated. We would not be able to look at each other in the eyes and we could not raise our heads. But Lord, to the gospel at the same time, it would only magnify what a merciful, loving God you are. Lord, that we would never have known how patient, how gracious, how merciful you, you truly are were it not for the stain of our sins being made white by the blood of Christ. So Lord, though our hearts are brought low by our sins, our hearts at the same time are lifted up because we are saved not by our righteousness. We're saved not by us doing good works or overcoming our sins. We're saved by the cross, the gospel of Christ. What you did on the cross, you, you accomplished it. You finished it. And our lives are now yours. We belong to you. So Lord, we want to all the more confess to you our sins. Seeing it, seeing them for what they are in your sight. And Lord, may our vision be clear. May our hope lie not in man, not in ourselves, not in any method or program. May our hope to be delivered from our sinful flesh will be your Son, Jesus Christ. And the saving message of the Gospel that we are saved by faith and we are sanctified. We are made free from sin by faith. And one day we'll be We'll see you as you are. For we'll be like you in every way, freed from sin. And that will happen by faith. So Lord, help us to walk by faith, trusting in you, 
for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.